I've had this phrase that's really, it's just been running around so much in my head and I'm going to say it and then I'm going to try and teach around it. I just can't stop thinking about it when I think about this book of Ruth. Like I said, it's been in my head for about the last month. This phrase is this, it says that your enemy has exactly what you need. That your enemy has exactly what you need. Now, we've said this before when we talk about enemies, because oftentimes when we talk about enemies, we do think of the arch villain, the real bad guy. Uh, Darth Vader comes to mind. Cobra Commander, if you're old school like me, comes to mind. Um, uh, You might think of the enemies of the United States, certain countries that we have created as enemies. You might think of um, uh, uh, political candidates, if you subscribe to one political party or another. So maybe your particular enemy has um, really wavy and wispy hair, and maybe your other enemy has... um, I'm trying to think of a way to describe Bernie Sanders. Sanders. Uh, No hair and small glasses and always seems angry. Um, But, you know, we have these enemies, kind of these straw characters of people that we we create. And when we have enemies, when you think about enemies, my friend Jan says, and I always will tell you guys this, you need to think of your enemy as someone whom you just don't like at the moment right? This is your enemy, right? So when Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, again, we sometimes skip over that because we think that, oh, I don't have any enemies, right? Who don't you just like at the moment? Another way to say this I've been thinking about is if you have this phrase running around in your head when you think of this person, yeah, I just wish they weren't around. The office, right? I hope they don't show up to the family gathering. The neighborhood would be so much better if they sold their home and moved, right? Life would be a lot easier if they would leave me or, again, us alone. The reds, the blues, right? Or maybe... I just have this one too. You just have this, this kind of thought when you think about this person. Oh, and you follow it with some sort of a groan and an eye roll, right? This is all ways to think about who your enemy is because a lot of times when we encounter this enemy word, we don't think that. And I would imagine like for the most part, folks sitting in this room, you don't have like this enemy, um, like the Hatfield and the McCoys or the, the Amulets and the... Capulets, right? We, we don't have these like tooth on tooth, blood on blood sorts of enemies. It's interesting. I was kind of thinking about this, this enemy list. And again, I wish they weren't around the office. Some of these, I hope they don't show up at the family gathering. The neighborhood would be better without them. You know those liberals ruining our country, right? See, Mark here, I'm going to, right? And then the, the other side, those conservative Neanderthals who keep us stuck in the Stone Age, right? It's interesting, or here, here's another one. The rich, those rich people, greed is destroying our nation, right? It's interesting, and I want to speak on this for a second, because I think that this is something that needs to be addressed, and I don't know exactly how to address it. 
within within our community, within our neighborhood. But I want to I want to talk about this for a second. I think this is a, a good place to stop. If you were to go on the current West Garden Grove Community Watch face, Facebook, um, or there's the community page, there's like these two kind of competing. Do you know who the current enemy of our neighborhood is? The homeless, right? There was a post a couple uh, just a couple days ago, and uh, here it is. And I've, I've just kind of blotted it out because I don't want to yet. So this is, maybe you've seen these folks here at the 99 cent store, and it is really difficult to read. Let me read it to you. Called Garden Grove Police Department. There's two homeless fellows right here, and there's a homeless girl also. And by the way, this particular man and his girlfriend have come to our church. Okay, so let's start here. Called Garden Grove Police Department. They're both passed out. Ew, thanks for ruining the kids' carousel too. The 99 cent store attracts garbage. They're probably tired from all the job searching. Ten laughs and thumbs up. I would wake their asses up and tell them to kick rock so my kid can ride, but there's no way in hell I would let my kid on that thing or maybe just start stealing their stuff and see how fast they wake up. We really like that one as well. Turds in the swamp. I always call Garden Grove Police Department Task Force removed. If we want to talk about who our current enemy is in our neighborhood or the current perception of what enemy is, you can look no farther than the homeless community. We have uh, the, the vitriol and the hate and, and what, we, what we see out there. Now, again, my thought is like, well, I'll just go on Facebook and let people know what's what, which always ends up not well, right? But, I mean, this is, and again, right here, 94 comments. And this is one, and then there's another one, and it's this thing. And I was just reading last night. I was literally sick of just kind of reading it. Um, and it's just really, it's vile, it's disgusting. And somebody, somebody again, I don't know the right form to kind of address in here, in Facebook land. I don't feel like this ends up really ever having that kind of positive, constructive criticism that we need. Maybe we need to host a forum here at our church and talk about this and bring some folks in on this because this kind of vitriol and hate. Listen, this was Joe. This was Joe just a few years ago. Joe was a kid that would hang out. He was a druggie. He was a user. He was a pusher. He was homeless. This is who he was just a few years ago. People change, right? And I think we need to talk about, again, enemies, who our enemies are, who we just don't like at the moment, who we would say, man, our neighborhood would be so much better if they would just go down to, I don't know, Cyprus, Seal Beach, Huntington Beach, right? Wherever. Just go to some other neighborhood, right? Now we'd be getting on. So it's interesting because, again, we all have an enemy. And maybe this isn't for you. You think and see those people like, man, I really wish they'd just be gone, right? And everybody in this room, you have some sort of an enemy. You have someone who you just wish weren't around. And so did Israel. Israel, we've talked about this. Israel's enemy was these folks who lived across from the Dead Sea, the, the, the country of Moab, right? We talked about two weeks ago the relationship between Israel and the Moabites, the Moabite nation was created from incest. There's that wonderful biblical story about the two daughters who decide to sleep with their father. And from that, they have a son named Moab. He's the father of the Moabites. Deuteronomy 23 talks about how the Moabites are prohibited from the temple. Um, by the way, I don't know if you caught that sarcasm. That was sarcasm. That was not a wonderful story in the Bible. That was just a joke. So I know nobody really laughed or chuckled or smiled. So I was like, I hope they don't think that... They're prohibited from the temple. They're not to make any treaty or friendship. Um, 
you are to kill anyone who is sexually intimate with them. Numbers 25. The book of Ruth happens during the time of Judges. Well, in Judges, uh, there's 18 years of oppression under King Eglon, right? King Eglon of the Moabites moves into, so his Moabite nation, they invade this region, they invade Judah, they invade Jerusalem, they invade this region. They're oppressing the Israelites, right? 18 years of oppression by this uh, pagan, incestuous nation. Um, and this is exactly when the story of Ruth happens. Isaiah talks about their arrogance. It talks about their destruction. Um, again, if you wanted to kind of check all the boxes of we just don't like these people at the moment, I wish they weren't around, um, this is exactly who the enemy is. And this is, by the way, where Naomi finds herself after losing her husbands and her two sons, and she has now acquired two Moabite daughters-in-law. Not a good two. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, Eric, that you know, sometimes it's easy to look at the homeless as the enemy. But sometimes the biggest enemy is me. I'm, my, I'm the biggest enemy. And I have to learn to deal with me or bring myself under control of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's easy, you know what I'm saying? It's easy to look at the homeless and there might be a few of them, but they, they're in and out. But sometimes the biggest enemy is me, my attitude toward the homeless, or my attitude toward the drug addict, or my attitude toward myself, or what I'm doing with myself. Or, so sometimes the biggest enemy practically and biblically even starts with my own humanity, right. with my own flesh. Right. So I just wanted to throw that out as you're going there. So, we have this, these relationships, and we, we know who these people are who we just don't like at the moment. And again, that could be you, as my dad just said. It's a good, good piece. Um, but let's go to Ruth, and let's read this, this narrative where, where Ruth, where Naomi is, and she's got her two daughters-in-law who are, happen to be Moabite women. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed him, and then she kissed him goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the, Lord hand, the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpha uh, kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth, ex <laughs> but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, uh, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Has anybody ever heard that at a wedding, by the way? That passage? Huh? That first part? I've, a lot of commentators say that's wedding. People read that at a wedding. Minus the, the kind of, I'll die, you die, be buried with me. That first part. Yeah. No That's what your mother gave me before we got married. That, that verse? That five. Yeah. Okay. But so, death do us part? Isn't that the condensed version of that? I mean, it could be. I don't know if that's where death do us part comes from, but it sure does sound like it, right? Where you die, I'll die, and where I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. If, if even death separates you and me. Anyway, rolling on. Uh, verse 18 uh, when Naomi realized Ruth, Ruth was determined to go with her, she, so she stopped urging her. Uh, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So, we got a lot going on here. Commentators are mixed, and I don't know if you had an initial response or initial gut feeling on how you encountered Naomi. Commentators, the ones that I was reading and just kind of some of the studies and the books that I was doing, some commentators kind of hold Naomi up as in a very positive light and she's this, this, this woman, this example, this beautiful uh, kind of shining light of, of, you know, hey, look, she's going back to her homeland and she's got this, right? One of the common, uh, commentaries that I read said this, Naomi's unselfish placing of her daughter-in-law over her own shows her noble character. Right? And so maybe you see a lot of the, the noble kind of character for her. Um, the way I encounter Naomi isn't as a very noble character. Right? And you could say this, I probably, probably the best way to say about Naomi is she's really just a mixed bag, isn't she? She does some good things, and she does some bad things, um, and she's not like this shining example of a very positive light. She's not just, hey, worth nothing. I, the, the way that I see Naomi in, in this text I, it'll be a little bit more negative, but I, I hope that we can, we can kind of learn some things, again, about enemies, about how we treat our enemies from, from Naomi. Um, so, verse 6 starts like this. She hears about food in Bethlehem, right? And after she hears about this food, she says, let's go back there. And she is bringing two Moabite daughters-in-law with her. Now, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Thank you, Mark. Bad idea, right? I was, I mean, I was, we were just, I was just kind of teaching. Imagine if you, I mean, using the homeless analogy, imagine if you maybe grew up in, in a very wealthy neighborhood, say a very wealthy coastal neighborhood, and you kind of lost your way and you ended up, do, do I remember when they had that, that massive homeless encampment on uh, the, the river trail near Angel Stadium, right? Imagine you grew up in wealth and prestige and you found yourself trapped in that homeless camp and you were strung out on drugs and all this sorts of stuff. 
and you decided to go home bringing two of your drug addict friends home with you, right? And how would your parents respond to that? How would people look at you if you did that? Again, this kind of, we have to understand this kind of context that's happening. Naomi's going home, but she's bringing these two Moabite women with her. Not a good idea. Nobody wants the Moabites around in Israel. Nobody wants those people snooping around. So Naomi has a plan. Here's her plan. She's going to send them away. She's going to pray them away. And she's going to explain them away. Right? The first thing she does is she just wants to send them away. So you read in verse, um, you read in verse 8, Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, go home. Each of you, go back to your mother's home, right? Interesting about the mother's home, all sorts of discussion about why she says mother and not father. Obviously, the father would have been the dominant, the dominant piece in this conversation. Go back to your mother's home. It's kind of maybe a way of saying, I'm not your real mom, right? This is the opposite of in the movies when, or the TV shows. You're not even my real father, right? This is like the opposite. Like, I'm not your real, I'm not your real, I like the, the, the father shirt, by the way. I'm not your real mother here. Go back, to, go back to your mom, right? So she just wants to send them away. How often when we have enemies, right, do we just want to get away from them? We just want to, I guess the word escape is kind of the word that I would use. Um, and we leave, we withdraw. Sometimes we use very technical language called boundaries. Oh, I'm just going to make boundaries with this person because they need to respect me, right? So we have enemies and we just want to send them away. Go back, go home, stay away from me. I'm going to withdraw myself from you. I'm going to leave you, right? So the first thing that Naomi tries to do is just to send him away. The second thing then what she does is I would say that she prays them away, okay? Prays them away. Because she launches, it's very fascinating that she launches into this prayer of blessing. This is in verse 9. She says, um, I'm sorry, second part of verse 8. May the Lord show you kindness as he has shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now, sometimes, again, you can think that this is like, as that commentator said, this is very noble. Look at her noble character. She's praying for these poor widows and she's saying, but what's interesting about this is if you just skip down a few verses down into verse 15, she says, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. So she's kind of praying, hey, may God bless you. God bless you, which is what we always say. But then she says, why don't you go back and worship your gods, right? Go back. The the, the god of um, Moab was a god named Shamash. Go back and worship Shamash. Go back and worship the pagan deities. Go back into your culture. Now, if you're writing a book on Jewish evangelism 101, this would not be your opening chapter, right? You have two young women wanting to go back to Israel with their mother-in-law to be assimilated into their culture, into Yahweh. And Naomi says, God bless you, but it's better that you go back and worship your gods, right? So again, I think that what what I read in these passages here is it's possible to pray insincere false prayers for our enemies, Right? When our hearts really, they, we just want them to stay lost in their lostness. Our lips are going one way. I know, I'm t- I know we've done this. Come on, let's be real Christian. Right? We think that we're so, you know, our lips are going one way and our hearts are going the other way. God bless them. I just, oh Lord, just bless them. 
I, I hope you bless them, you know, by them getting hit, run over by a car. Or we have this, we have this, this conflict, this inner conflict that we experience, right? It's possible to pray insincere false prayers for our enemies, right? When our hearts still want them to be lost in their lostness. Lips are going one way, your heart's going another way. So she sends them away, she prays them away, then she explains them away, right? She launches into this um, giant rationalization in verses 11 through 13, when she talks about, you know, I'm going to go home and you don't have husbands and even if I had kids and would you wait for them and God has turned against me and she has all these rationalizations, these justifications. Um, she has all, all the kind of right things to say, all the logic, the reasons that she, they should stay behind, right? And this is what we do with our enemies as well, too, right? We have the logic. We have the justifications. We have the reasons we shouldn't like them or engage them or respect them. And we think to ourselves, oh, their views are just so primitive, right? They're just regressive. They're just toxic, we think to ourselves, she just can't, if she just could keep her mouth shut, I could probably be around that person, right? That person is a bully and rude. I'm sick of that person's criticisms. And we have, listen, we have the rationalities, we have the logic, we have the truth, we have the evidence, right? And listen, sometimes we even have the Bible verses too, don't we? And we use the Bible verses. But here's the deal. In all three of these situations, whether you send them away, you pray them away, you explain them away, what are you left with? Starts with the word E. An enemy. Right? You're still left with an enemy. Right? And as I said at the beginning of this, I think that your enemy has exactly what you need. Your enemy has exactly what you need. Now, let's take it one step further. Because the, I would say that there's kind of an end game when you keep these people at arm's length, when you keep your enemies there. There's an end game of enemy hate. There's bitterness, right? There's all this bitterness that builds up inside. I had this idea of making you guys either drink either like sour milk or vinegar or wine that's turned really, really bad just to kind of really bring the teaching, bring the teaching home, right? <clears throat> um, but, but Naomi... One of the things that she does is she goes home and she says, you know, I'm not pleasant anymore. That's what Naomi means. And we talked with Elimelech last week. His name means my God, my king, right? And he's not true to his identity. And we talked about, and now Naomi, whose name means pleasant, says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me vinegar. Call me sour milk is what she says, right? There's another rejection of identity that happens here. Do you ever notice how bitter and angry you become? when you have those people who you just can't stand, right? One person, I, you might have heard this before, but they, it's been quoted by so many different people, I don't know who to give the right uh, quote to. Hanging on to resentment, hanging on to bitterness, hanging on to anger is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill someone else, right? It's what it is. It's like drinking vinegar and hoping someone else has the reaction, right? That's what it is. And this quote has been used by so many different people. Hanging on to resentment, hanging on to bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill someone else. 
when you hate people, when you're upset with people, when you're bitter, when you're resentful towards people, you end up, you just end up bitter. There's emptiness, right? Verse, um, where is that verse? Is it verse 21? I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Could you imagine? I mean, now we don't know exactly where Ruth is, but she's walked Ruth has walked the journey home to Bethlehem with her. And these women come to her and say, wow, Naomi, you're here. Wow, what's, what's going on? Yeah, I went away full, but now I'm empty, right? And Ruth might be just kind of standing there like, hey, uh, I'm here, right? Like, I'm, no, you're not empty. I, I'm, I'm with you. And remember just earlier, Ruth gave her that great speech, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Till death do us part, you know what I mean? We're, we're going to be together. Yeah, I'm empty. I was full, now I'm empty, right? And she's got this woman that's standing right behind her. And there's, there's all this emptiness as you continue to pour out your vitriol and your anger and your resentment toward this group or this person. You end up just emptying who you are and you just become more and more empty. Life feels shallow, hollow, meaningless. There's all this blaming that happens. Multiple times she just says, God, it's all your fault. You did this. Your hand's against me, right? And here's what's interesting is remember, um, we talked about this, is they leave Bethlehem and they go into Moab, which was in essence walking out on their God, right? The, the, the geographical nature of gods. When you were to leave Israel, you were in essence walking out on God and you were entering into Shemash, in, into the Moabite gods. And she says, God, I'm going to walk out on you. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to abandon you. But you know what? It's really all your fault. One of the great quotes that I love to live by, and here's, here's something that you can just write down, tattoo, mark if you want to, or whatever you need to chase to if you want to. Um, I, always, I always keep this in my mind. As long as you're a victim, you're never accountable. As long as you're a victim, you're never accountable. Right? Poor me, Naomi says. It's all God's fault. God did this to me. There's no accountability where she says, you know what, I walked out on God. We walked out, we left. We got out of there. As long as you're a victim, you're never accountable. And then there's this last piece where there's all this self-centeredness at the end of chapter one. Um, she said, they say, can this be Naomi? Verse 20 says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter, I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. There's all this self-centeredness. The effects of enemy hate always will end up in self-centeredness where it's just all about you and your feelings and about what they've done to you and poor me and my and I. Dallas Ward has a phenomenal quote where he says, if you think it's hard to love your enemy, try hating them, right? Because this is where you end up. This is the place where you end up, where you're bitter and you're empty and you're blaming and you're self-centered. That's where you end up with enemy hate, right? Now, two weeks ago, <clears throat> it was interesting. We talked about difficulties and trials and struggles. I was going to leave it up there, but I thought it would be distracting. But we had the whiteboard flowing two weeks ago when we were here. And I was thinking about this because this same list, as we talked about the struggles of Elimelech, 
this same list that we had, right, the, the effects of struggles and trials, if you don't deal with them appropriately, will end up in the same place. You'll be bitter, you'll be empty, you'll blame, you'll be self-centered, right? Here's why. This list just goes the same place, right? Here's why. is because they're both relational breakdowns, right? One, the effects of struggles and trials, one is a relational breakdown between you and God. God, you've afflicted me. It's all your fault. God, I'm empty. I don't have anything. Call me. I'm bitter, right? It's all about me. One is a, a, a relational breakdown between you and God. One is a relational breakdown. The enemy hate part is a relational breakdown between you and your fellow man, you and your brother or your sister. Either one of these severed relationships will end up leaving you in the same cul-de-sac, right? Bitterness, emptiness, blaming. It's all God's fault. Right? All these sorts of things. Me, my, I. So, <clears throat> Naomi and Ruth, here's the deal. Naomi and Ruth should be enemies. But they desperately need one another, don't they? They desperately need one another. Naomi would probably starve if it wasn't for Ruth. The, the, the end of this chapter, end of chapter one. Um, they arrive in Bethlehem and the barley harvest was just beginning. Naomi probably starves without, and we kind of know some of the story as we've already kind of introed it and, and seen the video and whatnot. Naomi probably ends up starving without her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth ends up spiritually starving without the, without the faith of Yahweh, without, the, the, um, without her kind of link through Naomi to God, right? They, again, your enemy has exactly what you need. What might your enemy have for you if you are willing to enlist them in a facet of your transformation? I know you guys are, you guys have someone in your mind right now and you're like, no, not that person. Let me think of someone easier that I can deal with, right? You have someone in your mind who is just, you, you wish they weren't around. You wish that group of people would just leave you alone. You just don't like them at the moment. You've created your boundaries. Now, <clears throat> let me give you a couple, we'll just end it with this. I just got a couple practical steps here to, again, I want us to think about our enemy and I want us to engage them in a way that they could be a part of your transformation. Naomi desperately needed Ruth. Ruth desperately needed Naomi. On paper, they're, they're bitter enemies and they need one another. And your enemy has exactly what you need, right? So here's just a couple things to think about as we kind of finish this, this thing up. I can't stand that person. Help me. Here's, here's what I, I got for you. Just remember that the primary strategy of Satan is isolation, right? It's separation. It's to split people up. What happens when Adam and Eve taste of the fruit in the garden? They begin pointing fingers at one another. It's all his fault. No, it's all her fault. No, he did it. No, it's, it's that, right? So Satan is immediately, it just fractures that relationship. Satan wants nothing else than to separate human beings. It's just a chapter or two later when the two sons are out in the field and what happens? Murder, right? Cain and Abel 
murder, right? And so we have to understand, right, is that, is that the primary strategy of Satan is to isolate human beings. Another facet of this is that when you're trapped in sin, right, you have a sin that you're kind of trapped in or it's anger or it's, um, it's lust or it's greed or it's idolatry or whatever it is, and you're kind of trapped into it, and there's all this shame and there's all this isolation that accompanies it. Why? Because Satan's primary strategy is to make you feel alone. If anybody finds out you're dealing with this, they won't like you. They'll disown you. They'll push you away. They'll, they'll be isolated from you, right? Understand that when you're at odds with, one, with others, this is Satan's most basic strategy for undermining Jesus' command to love others, right? It's just what he does, specifically enemies. This is his primary strategy. That person who you can't stand at the moment, Satan is triumphing over that relationship because you are isolated from one another. Second thing I would say is this. <clears throat> and Jesus gives us, and we haven't, even, we haven't even stepped into Jesus land yet this morning. Right? We haven't even stepped into the New Testament when Jesus talks about loving your enemies. But we'll, we'll, we'll jump in there. We're just going to dip our toe in because Jesus says, to love your enemies and to pray for them, right? Now, maybe you can do this because we talked a little bit earlier about insincere prayer. And so I want to give you some, some really short, sincere prayers that you're going to just pray anytime you think about this person or that group of people, right? Here it is. God, I hate that person and I don't want to. And you pray that sincerely. You pray that from your gut. God, I don't want to be around that person. Is it possible one day you might make it bearable? God, I mean, this is just kind of those gut prayers, right? <sighs> that person, Lord have mercy, right? And you have these just, again, just kind of these gut prayers, these prayers, and anytime they come to my, your mind, you pray that over them, and you begin to change, Jesus says, uh, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for, pray for those who persecute you. So maybe this is just the very beginning of that. But I would say this, that notice that this is an action step, right? This is an action step because the way that we understand love in, in, in Christianity, the way, that love, the way that disciples understand love is that love is action. It's not just feeling. And often the feeling of love, the affection towards people will follow the action of love. I can think about times when I have been in a moment of, and I was going to share some specific situations, but I'll skip that because it's Father's Day and I want to have a nice Father's Day. I can share, think of specific times when I have been in moments of just not liking my children at the moment, <laughs> my spouse at the moment, right? And here's what happens is sometimes we sit there and we're angry and we're upset and we're frustrated and we just wish that they would go away and we think that just out of nowhere, our feelings are just going to snap out of it. And we're just going to be happy and joyful and everything's going to be all right. What I notice is that in these moments, I often have to take action steps towards reconciliation, towards forgiveness, towards loving my children or my spouse or whoever the person is. Because the feelings don't just naturally bubble up in me of like, wow, I just, everything's wonderful. I'm just better. I have to actually take physical action steps. Henry Nowen says, that you will act your way into a better way of thinking before you will think your way into a better way of acting, right? We have to begin 
Again, if you can't stand this person, right, and you understand that the primary step is that Satan wants to isolate you, and then you just begin to, you just begin to take that action step of prayer towards that person, right? You have to do that. You just have to take that real basic action step of prayer. And then the last thing is this. Um, I just put up hammers and anvils, and I know that you guys are wait on pins and needles for my weekly emails for my quotes of the week. Did anybody read the quote this week? Oh, good Lord, that I'm so dis... You read it? You got to think about it. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll think about it again. Here's a quote. This guy, Theodore Beza. Well, let me read. I'll tell you about Theodore Beza. Sir, it is truly the lot of the church of God of which I speak to endure blows, not to strike them. But may it please you to remember that the church is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. Right? So Beza says this. Beza was, uh, was a priest, and this is during the time of the French Revolution, when they were trying to enlist the, the churches to kind of fight against the bourgeois of the French, right? Of, of the elite French. And they're saying, we need to gather the church, the lay people, to an, engage in the struggle against the elite, the bourgeois, the French, right? And so in some of these conversations, Beza says this. He says, it's truly the lot of the church of God, which I speak, to endure blows, not to strike them. Beza's saying, we're not going to get involved in this struggle, Right? But may it please you to remember that the church is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. So I, I kind of, you got this Theodore Beza, and I thought that I'd, I'd re-quote Theodore Beza, and I'm just going to change the last name to my dad's name, which I thought would be appropriate since my father is here. So here we go. Dad, you might want to put this on Instagram or something. Quote my father in, in a message. It says, I want to say this to you, church. It is truly the lot of you as disciples of Jesus to endure blows, not strike them. But may it please you to remember that the disciple, you and I, brothers and sisters, are an anvil which has worn out many hammers. Right? There is an inherent suffering with enemy love. People are going to try and hammer on you. People are going to try and strike you, beat you up whoop on you, and sometimes you have to remind yourself just to endure, just to suffer a little bit longer, right? So, <clears throat> when you think about not being able to stand those people and just getting a little bit of help, maybe you think about that relationship and you say, man, Satan is just dancing on that relationship right now. Maybe you just begin to pray for some people. And again, it could be real basic gut-level prayers. It could be prayers of blessing over people. Sometimes it's helpful for me just to pray blessings over people. Sometimes you may just need to think like, okay, Lord, this is difficult. Um, I was going to actually give you, I thought, especially for Father's Day, I was like, man, I should order a bunch of anvils and give them to all the dads. They could just, you know, put them in their car or drive around with them or, you know. Maybe I'll see if I can find little keychain anvils and, and pass them out on Oriental Trader. <laughs> um, so, so that's it. I think that's about all we got for the morning. Let's, let's do a little bit of discussion on this. Um, can you share, I mean, maybe it's sensitive, maybe it's not, but maybe you've had a current or a past enemy. You just want to share a little bit about that. Uh, do you initially encounter Naomi in a positive or a negative light? When you first read her, when we just kind of read through that verse, um, how, how did you encounter her? Why was that? Um, have you experienced bitterness, emptiness, blame, self-centeredness, and that kind of enemy hate? What, in addition to prayer, 
might be an action step you might take towards your enemy. Let's do a little bit of discussion, but before we do that, let me close in a word of prayer. Lord, and I know, like, I know in my heart, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely some relationships where, where Satan's probably kind of dancing all over it because um, he's triumphed. He's isolated me from certain people in my life. Um, I don't pray for him. I, I don't engage him. And Lord, there might be incredible blessing that could be found in that that I'm just totally missing on. And so, again, I know everybody in this room this morning has somebody in their mind who's just been great. Just thinking of them, it just grates on them a little bit. And these are the people, Lord, who, who we need, who have exactly what we need. So help us, Lord, help us this morning to, to really take seriously your words, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to bless those who do wrong to us. Um, it's all over the New Testament. It's one, of the, it's, it's one of the absolute dominant themes of the New Testament is this, this uh, strength and enemy love. Uh, be with us this morning, Lord, as we engage this. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.